0: When the Apostle Paul was first born again, the account is given to us in Acts chapter 9, it was quite a dramatic conversion, probably one of the the most dramatic uh, conversions that you'll ever hear about, the way that he was knocked off of a horse, blinded by the noonday sun, had to be led by the hand into the city of Damascus and Uh, A man who had come out of the Jewish religion and had been such a persecutor of the faith that the Christians uh, in all regions round about were terrified of him because he would either have them arrested or have them killed. And now this man has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And God speaks to him. Jesus speaks to him personally and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says who are you Lord and the Lord responds and said I am Jesus whom you're persecuting it's hard for you to resist it's hard for you to kick against the goats and he said Lord what would you have me to do those were the first words out of the Apostle Paul's mouth when he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and he said go into the city and there's a man there who's going to tell you what to do and so they took him into the city and he's there in blindness for a couple of days. And God then speaks to a man, a Christian man, who lived in the city of Damascus, whose name was Ananias. And God told Ananias to go and to, to, to pray for Saul of Tarsus, that he would receive his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, are we talking about the same man who I think you're talking about? Because this man doesn't talk to you. He doesn't get saved. This man kills saved people. What, Lord, what are, what are you asking of me? And the Lord told Ananias this, he says that he, this man Saul, he's praying and he said, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before kings and before Gentiles. And then he said this, and he said, and I will show him all the things that he must suffer for my namesake. And Ananias went and Ananias prayed for Saul and it says that something like scales fell from his eyes and he received his sight and he was then baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit and he immediately began to preach Christ in Damascus that were there. And a a, a relationship with Christ, a ministry was birthed on that day. But on the day that Saul received his sight, a prophecy was given over his life that he would suffer great things in his ministry for the Lord. And what we looked at at the end of our study last week as we concluded chapter 11 was 25 years now into this ministry, a list of all the things that Saul, now called Paul, could look back on over those 25 years and say, these are the credentials that I have in ministry. Not the churches that I've started, not the miracles that I've performed, not the many, many, many souls that have been saved at at the hearing of the words that have come from my mouth or the fruit of my ministry. But if there's anything that I'm going to boast about that I can hold before you as the credentials that I have been called by God and used by God and that His authority is in my life, then let that boasting be the fulfillment of the prophecy that was given on the day that I was saved, that I must suffer for his name. And those things listed out there as Paul now bears out all of the things that happened to him over 25 years, things beyond anything that you and I have gone through, whipped 39 times, five times, three times beaten with rods, a day in the night shipwrecked, lost in the sea, in dangers of robbers, in dangers of his own countrymen, in dangers at the sea, it, it just beyond anything that we can possibly imagine this man Paul went through. And we look at it and, and, and at first glance we just say, well, that was then or that was him or whatever. But you just think about it for just a minute and you say, what in the world drove this man to be able to endure the things that God let him go through? And even further than that, why is it that God would let a chosen servant unto him, one so faithful as Paul, go through all of the things that he allowed him to go through? And it's one thing to look at his life and ask that question. But then when we look at our own lives and we look at the things that happen to us from the time that we get saved. And we realize the the, the the fact of the issues that we will go through and that we do go through as Christians and the sufferings that we face. And sometimes we look at those things and we feel the weight of them and the pain of them and our hearts cry out to God and we say, why, God? What have I done? I know I'm a sinner, but do you have to rub my face in it? Lord, what is the reason for this suffering? What is the reason for this pain? that I'm going through and that I'm feeling within my heart and within my life and that seems to always be with me. Why, God, do the righteous suffer? Why is it that we go through suffering? And it is a fact that suffering is a part of the Christian life. We're all familiar with the story of Job, a man who was righteous, who loved righteousness and hated evil. And yet he suffered beyond anybody else in his day. And for no cause, even his friends would say, Lord, we can't figure this out. King David, a man faithful to God, would testify in the Psalms and he would say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus, telling us the truth, said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The entire letter of 1 Peter, written to address the fact that we will suffer, that we're going to suffer, and this is what suffering is and what it does and why. Why? The Apostle Paul would testify to the churches as he would travel to them and he would exhort them and and encourage them saying that through much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom of God. And we say that if we've been declared righteous by Christ and that no longer is our sin an issue before God, if it isn't an issue of retribution or of penance and the suffering that I'm going through, then why is it that the Christian goes through times of suffering and issues of suffering? And the answer is is not singular. I mean, God uses the sufferings that we go through in so many ways, and he makes so much of it. He does it to refine us, to prepare us for future things that he has for us. He does it so that we can relate to people that are going through things that we've been through. he, He allows it so that he can raise us up. He's raising us as kids, and part of what raises us is the sufferings that we go through. He allows us to suffer in order to set us free from things that are binding us, to cause us to hate sin, which the Bible says is the beginning of wisdom. He allows suffering in our lives as a means to lead us, to get us from where we are to where we're ultimately going. He allows pain to be the goad that moves us from one place to the next. He uses pain to reveal himself to us that in some way, It might cause us to look up and that we might see something of him or know something of him that we've never known before. And so the pain serves so many things. But the Apostle Paul tonight, as we move into chapter 12, gives to us another reason, another very important reason, why we as Christians go through difficulties. Why God allows suffering in our lives. And if we can hear what Paul has to say to us tonight, it will strengthen us. It will encourage us. It will move us through. It will actually even excite us about the trials that we face. And for some, it may even bring you to a point where you say, God, bring difficulty into my life. If the reward of it is such as I see in the patterns that you've performed in your servants in times past, then God, may I not miss out on something that you wanna do in my life that only pain can bring. So what does suffering produce according to Paul now as we cross into chapter 13? And what it is, it, it gives it to us in the first 10 verses is that pain and suffering keeps us grounded in the midst of God's goodness towards us or in the midst of God's using of our lives. Notice what Paul says as we begin chapter 13. He says in verse one, he says, it is not expedient or necessary for me doubtless to glory or boast. In other words, he's saying it is doubtless, not necessary for me to boast. I don't need to be boasting about my credentials. All of this is tongue in cheek. All of this is sarcasm. All of this is hyperbole. The use of exaggeration to make a point that doesn't need to be made this way, but I'm choosing to do it this way. It isn't necessary for me to do it, but Paul says, I'm gonna continue for a minute. And he says this, he says, I will come now, leaving the sufferings of the the last chapter, the boasting of that, he says, I will come now to boast about visions and revelations of the Lord. That is the supernatural things that God has shown me the things that he's done in my life that are uh, beyond the realms of the the, the senses of touch and taste and smell and hearing and sight. And I'm going to talk about things that God has done supernaturally, the visions that he's given and the supernatural revelations that he's given to me. And then he gives a whopper in verse two. He says, I knew a man in Christ. So he was a Christian man and of course uh not to not as a spoiler, but he's talking about himself here. He says about 14 years ago. And so uh just pause right there and just consider that for the first time now in 14 years since this has happened, the apostle Paul is is revealing this to one of the churches that it actually happened. Now, he's been saved for about 25 years. So you can get that kind of in the span. It's about 9 years Past the time that he first met Jesus, this experience happens. And here's what the experience was. He says, whether it was in the body, I cannot tell, or whether it was out of the body, I cannot tell. Only God knows. And here's what it was, that such a one was caught up unto the third heaven. You say, now, wait a minute, what in the world? You just completely blew the lid off my concept of heaven. What does this mean, the third heaven? It's hard enough for me to comprehend the fact that there's a heaven. And now you're telling me that there's a third heaven. No, it's actually quite simple. Here's here's how that works, okay? In the Bible, the word heaven is used to describe three different places. Number one, or the first heavens, as it's it's, uh, figured in scripture, is just the atmosphere of the earth. The the space or air that's right in front of your face right now, my hand is moving through the heaven, the first heaven, as it were, just the atmosphere of this earth. The second heavens are what we figure to be outer space, beyond the boundaries of earth's atmosphere, where the planets and the stars and galaxies and solar systems, everything that, that exists within the confines of the universe, as we know it, is considered to be the second heavens, and then the third heavens is what is beyond that. That is the dwelling place of God. Now, in Genesis 1-1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in just that one verse, you have the creation or the beginning of time, space, and matter. Beginning, in the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that space, and the earth, that's matter, and so amazing, right? Just one verse, all of that is, is is spoken into existence, and it exists. But the universe, as we know it, that was created by God in Genesis chapter one verse one, is an entity unto itself. It has boundaries. It is not infinite. In other words, this universe does not go forever. There is an edge of it, and the Bible says that the whole universe measures the span of God's hand. That is that from the tip of his pinky to the tip of his thumb, that's the size of the entire universe that you and I dwell in. Now, just let that sink in for just a minute. How big does that make you and me, Mr. and Mrs. Big Shots that we are? When you consider in the the great span of the universe where where we fit in that, and yet all of that just fits in God's hand. And so the third heaven's, is whatever exists outside of the universe as we know it, and that would be the heavens where God dwells. In a minute, Paul's going to call the same place paradise. So he's not talking about degrees of heaven. Okay, well, there's a first degree for the really righteous and a second degree for those that are a little better, a little worse than that, and a third degree for people like me, and hopefully all you can make it to like seventh or eighth or something like that. It doesn't work like that. One heaven, Paul says, I saw it. He says, whether I was in the body, whether I was out of the body, I don't know. He says, but I was caught up into the third heaven. And he says, and I knew such a man, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. Now he repeats something that he already said back in verse two. And that is that he doesn't know whether he was in the body when this happened or whether he was out of the body. Paul understood that it's possible for the mind to exist outside of the body. Do you understand that? And that's important for us to understand because for those that just think that when we die, that we just die and that's it and we're done. That's it, we're we're dead, We, we sleep, we fall asleep and the whole thing is over. That's not true. The spirit and the mind of man is infinite. The only part that's finite is the body that we live in and the body is nothing more than a tent or a house that the mind and the spirit indwell. And if the body dies, the spirit and the mind continue. They do not die with it. They are eternal and cannot be destroyed. And Paul recognized that here. He says, I don't know even if I was in the body when this happened, but I know that this happened to me beyond a shadow of a doubt. I also find it interesting that that, that two times in these two verses, he, he refers to himself in the third person and he refers to himself as someone that no longer exists. Isn't that interesting? He says, I knew a man in Christ. And then in verse three, he says, and I knew such a man. Well, you say, why does Paul do that? I think first of all, he does it just for the sake of, uh, of humility and being abstract about what it is that he's saying. It's probably a little awkward for him to be sharing this experience, but I think that Paul was aware of something that, I, that I hope you and I are aware of as well. And, and here's what it is. And some, some of us need to hear this tonight. Did you know that you are not, if you are in Christ tonight, you are not the same person that you were 14 years ago or the same person that you were even 10 years ago or five years ago. We are in Christ being changed from what we were to what it is that we will become. That is a process that is happening to us day by day as God changes us. And if we get locked into thinking that we just are what we are and that there's no hope of us ever changing and becoming more like Christ and less like self, then we can almost lock ourselves into being just selfish people and thinking that there's nothing happening within our lives. But That's not true. The Bible says that he started a work within our lives and that he's going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And if the Bible says that it's his will for us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, then that means that he's not gonna let us stay the same. We're going to change. And that should be hope for some of us that know that we need to change. But here's something else that it means, and maybe this is even more important for some of us to understand that not only does it mean that you and I are not the same that we used to be, but it also is true for everyone else in the body of Christ. Sometimes we can look at someone, a person, maybe it could be someone close to us like a spouse or a son or a daughter or a family member or or someone that we've known or a friend, and we can think that they are what they are. And we can think that that person, they're in Christ, they're saved, but they're never going to change. That's not true. In Christ we change. The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Now, if we die daily in Christ, then here's what that means. It means every three years or so, we die a thousand deaths. Because if we die daily, then that adds up over time, doesn't it? And in that process of dying and being changed, we are changing. And for us to think of someone in the context of what they were and to carry that context into their present or their future is not fair to that person. We're changing and we must hope in the power of God. If we think and trust that he can change us, then we must believe that he can change others as well. I knew a man in Christ. I did too. And I'm not that man that I was a year ago, thank God, or two years ago or five years ago that I can look at my life And although there's so much that still needs to be done in me, I'm not what I once was. And I have hope that should Lord Terry, that I will not be in the future what I am today. He's faithful to do it. Paul says, I knew a man. That man is no more. But here's what happened to that man. It says in verse four, it says that he was caught up into paradise and he heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, at this point, what I'm expecting from the apostle Paul, if he's like every other person that that boasts of having some kind of experience like this, there's about to be a sales pitch and he's going to say, "Now, this is the teaser or the preface. But if you want to hear about the rest of the of the experience that I had for just 3 easy payments of 4.95, you could subscribe to my book or you could get the, the, the Kindle version for half the price and you could just download it and I will tell you all about what happened uh, when I saw heaven, when I saw the place that every one of us is waiting for, the paradise that we're hoping for, the paradise that Jesus spoke of when he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, that excites the minds of so many of us that can't wait for those days that we'll see him. The paradise that Jesus spoke of again in the book of Revelation when he says, to him that overcomes, I will give to him to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What, Paul, did it look like? What did you see there? And you wait for him to say it. And here's what Paul has to say about that experience. He said, I heard unspeakable words that it is unlawful for a man to utter. He doesn't say much, does he? Be weary when you see a book in the bookstore that says, "I spent 23 minutes in heaven," you know, and I'm here's 98 pages about it. Paul wouldn't dare. The word "unlawful" is just that—it isn't right. He said, "For me to try to attach human language to the things that I saw in what's to come and what awaits us, it wouldn't be right." There are no words in the human language. could do justice to the things that are waiting for us there and for me to even try would to cheapen your expectation of what awaits and what it is it is an unlawful experience but there are a couple of things that we can draw from what paul says here that are absolutely amazing to just think about in terms of what it is that does await us when we get there first of all what we can, we, we can infer from what Paul says, he says that he heard unspoken words. That's literally what it is. So there was a communication, something that was communicated to him, but it was communicated to him unaudibly and yet it was specific in its content. He heard unspoken words. The word words means sounds that have a definite meaning. So there was something of a definite meaning that was communicated to Paul without words. Now he mentions nothing in the whole of his report of this vision of anything that he saw with his eyes. Only one sentence of what he experienced and that came by way of the hearing with the ear. I heard unspoken content. That's what he says. So what does that mean? It means that absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt when you and I get to heaven, that we will be able to have an intimate relationship with the people there, even strangers there, that is deeper than the deepest relationship that we have here on earth. That there will be communication that will take place that can happen without words. Now imagine just for one moment if we could communicate on earth in the context of thoughts. That we could just all of a sudden read one another's thoughts right now. We didn't have to use words and we just, I think something and you knew exactly what I was thinking. Do you know what would happen if we could do that for five minutes in this room? No, no seriously, think about this for a minute. And I want you to take, you take this home and this can be your meditation tonight. Let's lock the doors, all the doors, and unveil the thoughts five minutes. You know what would happen? Everyone in this room would be dead. We would be dead. And we're Christians. Because we would all of a sudden see everything that's going on in our minds. You know what the Bible says about the mind of fallen man? It says that it is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who could know it? And we would see the thoughts that people think (laughs) towards us about the way we dress, about the way we talk, about our mannerisms, the little things. And we'd go, you think what? And you would say, you? And, And it would take about 40 seconds and, and it would be like Jerry Springer. I mean, we would just, just, people would be, there would be chairs flying, you know, the whole thing. We cannot handle that. We couldn't handle that in a marriage in this in this fallen world that we live in to be able to see one another's thoughts. But one day, when all things are made right, when our sin is finally cast as far as the East is from the West in reality, as it is to us positionally but when it is done and we are pure even as he is pure when all things are put under the blood when all sin is put away then we'll be able to communicate with one another on such an intimate level and there'll be nothing that exists but love and the depth of intimacy that will exist between brothers and sisters in christ even strangers Will be deeper than the deepest relationship that we could ever have on Earth, as we know here it is uh, here and now today. Another thing that we can infer from this is that we will have senses and abilities beyond what we have here on Earth, and probably beyond uh, what we can ask, think, or imagine. Now, just think for a moment about the senses that we have. We have sight, touch, we have smell, we can hear. Uh, You know, those are the senses that God has given to us number of years ago, uh, I temporarily lost my sense of smell for a couple of days, and I've learned since then that that happens to everybody every time they get a cold, but uh, but I, I, for just a few days, just totally, completely lost my sense of smell, and I thought that I had lost it forever, that it was gone, and that I was never, ever again going to smell the smell of rain on the pavement on a, on a hot summer day, or smell the smell of fresh cut grass, or the pollen in the spring that was going through. I mean, I really almost was mourning over the fact that I really thought that I'd really really lost my sense of smell forever. And it was sad, but it started to get me thinking that that wouldn't bother me if I had never had a sense of smell. If I didn't know what smelling was, never smelled a flower, never smelled ammonia, you know, never smelled anything, it wouldn't bother me that I never had that I that I couldn't smell. But because I have smelled and I know what it's like, that bothered me. Now think about this. There are senses that are awaiting us in heaven that we don't even know what they are yet in the bodies that we will occupy then, And it doesn't bother us now because we've never experienced them and never had them. But to know the reality of those things that await us, just the fact that we'll be able to perceive thought that's unspoken, that's a sense that you and I don't have right now. What other things await for us there we do not know? And what we know is that this place that we're going, this paradise that Paul was caught up, that he tells us so much, so very little about in this, is that it is worthy of every bit of our lives being committed to it. And you ask the question, why was Paul given this revelation? Why did God give to him this experience where he was caught up into the third heaven? And part of the reason why is because it's what contributed to the steadfastness of Paul in his ministry. It's part of the reason why he got up every day from the sufferings and the abuses and the whippings that he went through and kept on going because he had a taste, a sense of where it was that he was going. And his testimony to you and I tonight is that it's worth it, that no matter what we go through or why we go through it, it's worth it because of what awaits us on the other side. Jesus used heaven as a motivation in all seven of the letters that he wrote to the seven churches. In every one of those letters, he signed it off by saying, to him that overcomes, I will give, and then he lists some attribute of heaven that awaits us on the other side that's there. It's worth it, every bit of it. Concerning visions and revelations that we would call extra biblical because that's what Paul is, is experiencing he's experiencing an extra biblical uh, moment where he's being shown something that you can't point to a chapter and verse uh, and necessarily draw it out and, and see it but God is doing something supernatural in his life I believe that it is the birthright of every Christian, every born again believer to have experiences from time to time with God that are supernatural, that fall under this banner of visions and revelations as Paul is talking about it here. I believe that they are few, that they are not something that we are to seek after and look for and live for and say, oh, that God, that you would bring me again into the supernatural realm where I experience something else. I believe that they are purposeful for his purposes and for our blessing when he does them. I believe that they are personal, that God does it for us, that there's something that, that, that he wants to just reveal to us of himself, just times in his presence. And I believe that they are incidental and that they're not to be sought after and lived for, but I believe that they are real and that they exist. I know in my own life that there have been times where God has... Uh, done things and I, I, I they are almost unspeakable for me to try to describe to you I was uh, with my son Rocky away for a couple of days at the end of last week and we were just talking about the things of God and sharing being able to share with him a lot of the uh, experiences that I've had in Christ over the years and telling him about a time um you know that 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 god was doing something early in my my walk with the lord georgia and i newlyweds and um just a a short season where there was a lot of up in the air questions about what was going on in our lives and and there was a moment that i was at work i was on the floor of someone's basement laying on a wall by myself and just sitting there in an empty house not expecting anything and, and just for, for a two or three minute period of time, Jesus showed up there. Not, it wasn't physical. He didn't say, hi, my name is. I didn't see anything. There was, no, um, there was nothing visual about it at all, but he was so absolutely in the room. And at that, at that moment, he opened my understanding to, to, to see things and understand things about his work in my life. And and it was so powerful and it was so real and revelatory. And my eyes didn't roll back in my head and I didn't go into a trance and it wasn't, I didn't go somewhere else. But he was so real. And it was two or three minutes and then it was over. And it passed. And I went back to doing what I was doing. I went home and told my wife that day and I said, Georgia, the most incredible thing happened today. God did something, he showed me his involvement in our lives and how real it is, how personal. He showed me that even the words and conversations that we had, that he was putting those words in our mouths back and forth as we were saying it, that he he is so close. He's so much closer to us than we could ever imagine. And he did that. I don't know why. I don't know for what cause. It's not something that happens every day, but I believe that it is something that God does in our lives when we need it, according for his purposes. I believe that if we look for those things for the sake of stirring up faith within our lives, it will never happen. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so the purpose of vision or revelation that God might give is never to produce faith within our lives. Faith is always first, it's foundational. It's always secondary because of something that he wants to do. But I believe we should be open to God doing it. And I believe that he will for every one of us. I believe that it's our birthright in him when it is absolutely necessary. But understand this, it comes with a price tag. Because notice what Paul goes on to say next in verse five. He says, for of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. He backs off from the sharing of this vision and he goes back into the context of his infirmities. Now you say, Paul, why wouldn't you tell us more about that? Even if you don't wanna get, I mean, there's gotta be something more that you can say about it, but notice what he says in verse six. He says, for though I would desire to glory, the temptation for me to keep talking about this is there. He said, I shall not be a fool for I will speak the truth. But now I forbear, I stop, I draw back. Why? Lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be or that which he hears me to be. What he's saying to them here is he's saying, listen, what I would like to do is I would like to keep talking about this vision that I have. He says, but I'm gonna stop right there. I'm gonna go no further than telling you about unspeakable words that I heard that were unlawful for a man to speak. And here's why I'm gonna stop and not go on one one sentence more. Because if there is even the slightest chance that by me sharing this experience of being caught up into heaven with you, that you might, Begin to think of me one millimeter more than what you see me to be or what you hear me to be. And, and if you've been following with us in our study in Second Corinthians, that's not much. <laughs> Paul wasn't much to look at and he wasn't much to listen to. And Paul says, I am afraid that you'll puff me up in your mind, that you'll put me on some kind of a pedestal and you'll begin to think of me as more, more than what I really am. And he says, if there's even a chance of that happening, then I'm gonna shut my mouth right now. I'm not gonna say one more word about this thing that happened within my life. It is extremely important to God that those that he uses, now listen, because we all desire to be used by God, don't we? I hope so. That not one person that is used by God is viewed by others or gives the appearance that they are more than what they are. That's important to God. Why? Here's why. Because at the end of the day, when all of us stand before Christ, you know what we are? We're fallen humanity. That's what we are. Every last one of us. Whether it's an apostle like Paul or whether it's a pastor or an evangelist or whether it's someone who serves in in a very obscure and invisible role in the body of christ no matter who that is every one of us at the end of the day will stand before him as sinners that have been saved by grace through faith we're going to stand before him as sinners that struggled with sin every single day of our lives we're going to stand before him as those that wrestled to discern and determine what his will was for us We're gonna stand before him as those that never had it all together, no matter what anybody else thought about us, that we just simply are what we are in him. And we will all stand before him as nothing more than that. And the Bible says that he is not a favor of persons, but that he sees us as his sons and daughters, not one above another. And when a servant of Christ becomes inflated in the mind of someone who is observing or who even is a beneficiary of that ministry, that person has been been placed in a very dangerous place. And here's how that works. If you begin to think of me, or if you begin to think of any leader in the body of Christ as being more than just a fallen man who's being used as an instrument of God, just like anybody else can be, then eventually one day, It could take a week, it could take 10 years. You're gonna realize that that's not true. You're gonna realize that that leader is just like you. They go home at the end of the day and they deal with their kids and their wives and their spouses. They worry about how they're going to pay their bills. They worry about their health issues. They, they don't know and have all the answers to all of life's problems. They suffer and go through things like everyone else. And one day you're going to realize that they are just as messed up as you are because we are all messed up. And if they, that person, has allowed themselves to be elevated in your mind as to be thinking that I am something greater that you should attain to be like me. Then on the day that you realize that I am just like you, you're going to first of all be disappointed because you're going to realize that you've been lying to. You're going to feel scandalized. I really believe that that person was something and it turns out that they are nothing more than just a fallen person like everyone else. And if you put your hope in becoming like that person, you were disillusioned into thinking that you could become something that you're not. And then you're gonna be discouraged because you're gonna think, I wanted to be like that. I thought I could be like that, but they're not even like that. And if they're not even like that, then I will never have a chance of ever being what I thought they were that I will now never be. <laughs> and do you know what that person then does? I'll tell you what they do. They say, ah, to the church into to the body of Christ. They say, I love Jesus. I know I need my sins forgiven. I know I'm going to heaven, but I could care less for what I see in church because it's hypocrisy. And if Paul realized that if I say one thing that's gonna make me seem more spiritual than I really am, or it's gonna put a false hope in your mind that you can be something more, then what God intends or will bring you... Listen, God's going to make us what he's going to make us. He's changing us. But don't ever put a man on a pedestal or a woman or a minister because you'll be disillusioned and eventually you'll be discouraged. You'll just say, forget it, to the body of Christ. And that's what we see happening in the church of Jesus Christ today. So many professed Christians that want nothing to do with the church. And a lot of it is the fault of leadership that has allowed themselves to be pedestaled by people. And in order for a servant or a leader to avoid that tendency, it is also important for a servant or a leader not to think of themselves too highly, isn't it? And for that reason, God allows certain things to take place within their lives. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse seven. He says, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. God hates plastic. Did you know that? If God were to go through the line at Adam's And they asked him the question. They said, paper or plastic? He would say paper every single time because God hates plastic. You know why he hates plastic? Because plastic is fake. It's synthetic. It isn't real. It's an imitation of something else. If there were two plants and one of them was plastic and one of them was real, God wouldn't even look at the plastic plant. He has no interest in things that appear to be something that are not what it is that they appear to be. He is completely authentic in and of himself and what he makes, he desires it to be authentic. And pride creates plastic people. That's what pride does. Because when I get lifted up in pride and I begin to think that I'm something more than I am, I've become different from what I really am and I've become plastic. And God immediately looks at that and says, I can't use that. That is of no use to me and it's of no use to people. It's prideful, it's lifted up. And so God will go out of his way to keep something that's real from becoming plastic. And if he has to use means to do that, he will. And for Paul, there was a tendency. And if Paul needed an outward agency, oh my goodness. He says, there was given me a thorn that was in my flesh. The word given implies that it was given from God. It was not inflicted upon him. It wasn't thrust there by Satan. It was given by God. And it's a thorn. A thorn is a painful distraction. You ever gone through the woods, walked through the wild rose and gotten a thorn stuck in you? You ever gone through the wild rose, gotten a thorn stuck in you and had it break? And the tip of it is just a little bit below what you're able to dig out with just your fingernails? And every single time you move a certain way or you twist a certain way, it penetrates just a little deeper. It hits a nerve. You ever ever do that? It's a thorn in the flesh. It's a constant reminder of the fact that we are mortal, that we are weak. A thorn is the symbol of the fall. There were no thorns prior to the fall of man. And Paul says, there was given to me by God a thorn that was in my flesh, something that dealt in the body. We don't know what it was. We don't know if it was something that was physical. We don't know if it was his eye problem. We don't know what it was that affected Paul. But we know that it was given by God and that it was a constant reminder to him that he was nothing more than a mortal man. He tells us that this thorn was, was also a messenger of Satan that was given to buffet him. A messenger of Satan. What is that? You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Have you ever had Satan come and tell you that you're worthless? Have you ever had Satan come and tell you that you're disqualified? Have you ever had Satan come and tell you that there's no hope for you? Have, have you ever had him tell you that that you that you' you're you know maybe you're saved, you can't shake you there because faith is faith, but that there's no there's no plan for your life anymore because of things that you've done, things in your past that have been so lodged deep within your your being that that, that God just can't use you the way that he would have been able to use you if you had made different choices. Is this sounding familiar to anybody else or or am I the only one that gets these things? It's a messenger from Satan. I remember reading in *The Pilgrim's Progress*. It's my favorite book outside of the Bible. It's it's beyond words the the wisdom and the insight that, uh, that, that 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 lies in the pages of that dream that was given to John Bunyan. You know, but when he walked through the Valley of Humiliation or the Valley of the Shadow of Death, he walked through both of them at separate times. He describes the horrors of what it was like to be in a dark place where there was just a chasm of lostness on his left and on his right, and he couldn't see where he was going. And the voices of the demons that were there saying to him blasphemous things, and the thing that struck me was this, it just encouraged me so much. He said that when the voice sounded that was saying blasphemous things of God and, and, and just things of his own depravity, that it was this, as if it was his own voice speaking it. And I remember hearing that and just going, oh God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not the only one that's ever been through this before. That 400 years ago, you moved a man to write this down on the page that I might know that it isn't just for the last 400 years, but even beyond and before that, it's been common in the lives of God's people that there's a messenger that can come right out of the pit of hell that can sound so much like our own thoughts, even like our own voice, that we can be, that we can be deceived by it into thinking that, that it's actually real. But Paul knew what it was. He knew what it was to have a messenger from Satan to come there and tell him how worthless he was and to do it in such a way that he would believe it for the sake of keeping him humble. And it was painful to him, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted beyond measure. Now, what we come to here is the answer to the question of what purpose does pain serve in the the life of a Christian beyond all the other things that it does. Pain and suffering keep us grounded in the midst of God's usefulness of our lives. It's part of God's plan to keep us humble so that we can remain usable. And pain is an essential ingredient in that. But how does a Christian handle the difficulty of suffering? Because it doesn't make it go away, does it? Just knowing that it exists, how do we handle it? Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says in verse eight, he says, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The way that Paul handled the difficulty that came into his life, his immediate reaction was to bring it to the Lord in prayer. He realized that this was beyond his strength to alleviate and fix or do anything about or to change. He knew that if he wanted to continue on in ministry, that this was something that was there. And so he took it to God and he said, God, in simple faith, I'm asking you, would you please... In your perfect will, would you remove this from my life? And no answer came. And then the second time, and then the third time, and Paul prayed. Now this brings us to an incredible mystery, isn't it? This mystery of prayer. Have you ever wondered why it is that an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing, all-loving, all-powerful God would have us pray about something more than once? I mean, if there's something in my life, some need that I have, and I bring it to him, then why would I pray more than once about it? Isn't it enough for me to pray the first time? Isn't it interesting that when you read the pages of Scripture, there's times when someone prays once and incredible things happen. Hezekiah prayed one time and 180,000 enemy soldiers were blasted, gone. Like, man, God, thanks. Could you do that every time? You know, just one prayer, lay it out before God and and there it happens, you know. There's times Abraham's servant, he praises him, he says, Lord, let let the first woman who... Who, who offers to water the camels? Let her be the one. Hey, can I have a drink of water? Sure. And let me get some water for your camels as well. Lord, that, that's amazing. Can't it just always be like that, Lord, every time? But yet then we see other times in Scripture, we see Elijah, a man who called down fire from heaven, a prayer of ten words. But then just a few days later, we see him on his face seven times. He asked God, Lord, would you please send the rain now? And it wasn't until the seventh time that there was even the slight semblance in the sky that God had heard his prayer and that there was an answer. Daniel, a man who was favored and so beloved of God, prayed for three full weeks for an answer to the thing that was before him, before God came to him. And you wonder, what is it, God, the mystery of this prayer? And why is it so elusive, the answer? And what's the answer for me? How many times should I pray for something that I'm asking God to do or for a concern that I have? And here's the answer you pray until you get an answer. And that might be one time, or it might be three times, or it might be ten times, or it might be three weeks. But Jesus said, ask. And the language is ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking knock and keep knocking. And he says, they that ask will receive, they that seek will find, and they that knock unto them, the door will be opened. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. And it's important that we never lose sight of that and think that we need to overcome his reluctance. We cannot see how prayer works in the unseen realm. We must simply believe that it does because he says it does. And we must bring our concerns to the Lord in prayer. Now, sometimes he'll answer in power. Sometimes he'll answer in absolute silence. And sometimes he'll answer no to the things that we ask, which is what Paul receives as the answer here. God says, no, Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so that's the answer that God gives and so here's the answer the answer is grace is given to you from me and that's the answer to your prayer now what God is essentially saying to Paul here he's saying that this pain that you're experiencing is an expression of my grace within your life and grace is always given and provided by God freely when we can't produce something in our lives ourselves and so therefore, what God is saying to Paul by answering him this way, he's saying that if the thorn in, my life, in your life is a part of the grace that I'm giving you in your life, then the removal of the thorn, if I were to answer your prayer by taking it away, would also be the removal of my grace. This thorn is for your protection unto the lasting and abundant fruitfulness of your life. And for me to take the thorn away would be to take away the grace and to leave you exposed to the thing that I'm protecting you from. This thorn is from me. That's what he's saying. I remember when 9-11 happened and, and the whole nation's attention was on that tragedy that took place at the Twin Towers. And I remember watching one of the news reels, uh, and they, they were they were showing um, the scene in the lobby of one of the buildings during the chaos of uh, you know the smoke and the people that were uh, coming through. And I remember that in the background you would hear the thud, and, and you just you know in the in the the chaos and the running you'd hear doof doof. And one of the guys said that sound is the sound of the people that are jumping from the upper floors uh, to, 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 to escape the heat of the flames that are going on up there. And I'll never forget what I heard one of the firemen that was standing in the lobby say with a distressed look on his face, just covered in soot and and sweat and, and fear. And he looked into the, into the camera and he said, I can't imagine what it's like up there if the alternative is to jump down here. And, and, and what God is saying to Paul in this whole thing, he's saying, listen, yes, there's a thorn in your life right now. Yes, there's suffering, there's difficulty, there's something that you're going through and the heat and the pressure and the difficulty of it is beyond what you think that you can handle and that you can bear. But understand this, that if that thing is from me, and listen, if you're in Christ here tonight, that thing in your life is from him, then the removal of that thing would expose you to something that is far worse the thorns in our lives are an expression of his grace towards us to protect us from something that we can't see or understand and paul's response to the reality of that is that he says in verse 10 therefore i take Pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sakes, because when I am weak, then I am strong. If the removal of the trials that are in my life right now would first of all expose me to something that he's trying to protect me of, and then second of all rob me of the grace that he gives me to go through these things, then I opt to take the trial. That's what I want in my life right now. And Paul says, I'll take it because his strength is made perfect in my weakness. And that is always the case within our life. So what makes pain tolerable for the Christian? Number one, what makes pain tolerable is the assurance that a loving God is the author of it. Whatever you're going through here tonight, no matter how difficult it is, understand this, that if you're in Christ, God is the author and the creator of the difficulty that you're going through right now. And he is a loving God. And if he's allowing it, he's allowing it for our good. The second thing that sustains us in in the midst of this or gives us uh, the ability to tolerate the pain in our lives is the assurance that, that he sustains us with the grace that we need in order to bear the difficulty of what we're going through. That not only is he protecting us from something that we don't understand, but he is also strengthening us to be able to endure the difficulty that we're going through no matter how great it is. And if we serve an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God, then that means that there is no degree of difficulty that we can face wherein the power that he supplies for us to go through it isn't greater. His power is always greater than the difficulty that we're facing. And that's always true that he gives it to us. And third of all, he gives us the hope of an expected end. The Bible says in Lamentations chapter 3, and I don't have the verse to put up for you on the screen, but it says that he does not willingly afflict the children of men. That he doesn't just say, ah, you know, they look like they're having it easy. I'm just going to see how they handle this one. You know, tax strip, blow out the tires. He doesn't do that. If there's something in our lives, that something is there for a reason. And that something will be there as long as it needs to be there. And when it doesn't need to be there anymore, he'll remove it. It's for a time. And so the suffering that we go through is for a season. Now, if you don't have that, if you don't have the assurance tonight that God is the author of your pain and that God's gonna sustain you with his grace and that your suffering is not forever, then what you're going through right now, I can just tell you, it is debilitating. It is gonna gonna destroy you. You will fall under the weight of it. But if you have those things, the assurance that he's in charge, that he's authored it, the fact that he's going to sustain you with his grace and the hope of an expected end, a reason for that pain, then not only will you bear up under the weight of that pressure, but you'll go beyond that and you'll actually be strengthened in it. And it will bring to you a sense of rejoicing, even though it hurts. I told you that I got away with my son for a couple of days at the end of last week, we were climbing Mount Marcy in the Adirondacks and, spending a couple of days, just the two of us, and we backpacked. So we camped on the top. We carried 50-pound bags up, and he's way stronger than I am. I learned that this past weekend, you know. (laughs) One of the things that we we learned is that when you're close to your goal, it doesn't matter how hard it is, there's strength somewhere underneath it. I mean, we would be just so dog-tired that we could barely lift our feet anymore just hurting from head to toe and we would see some sign that we were close to our destination we'd pass a landmark or whatever you know just a half mile left and an amazing thing happened is that we just there was a spring in our step there was speed to our pace there was something there was a, 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 you know a pickup in our conversation everything just became uplifted that's what happens to the christian that realizes that god is in control of their infirmities and so paul says I'll boast in it. I rejoice in it. I'll take it. God, whatever you want to If it means your strength in my life, then it's what I want for my life. Read the rest of 2 Corinthians. Paul concludes his argument of defense for himself in the face of the false apostles that were seeking to belittle him to the Corinthians. He upholds his testimony that he wasn't burdensome to him. And then he closes out the book in chapter 13 with an ultimatum. He says, listen, guys, you think that I'm weak, but if you don't get things right and set things in order the way they're supposed to be in Corinth, then you're gonna find out that when I get there, I'm not the weak man that you think I am. But if you would just set things right and examine yourselves and set yourselves in Christ and get things right, then I will come there and I will be the biggest weakling that you have ever seen in your lives. And that's what I want to be. Because if I'm weak, it's because you're morally strong. And that's the desire that I have for you, for each of you. And I want to find you in peace. I want to find you walking with Christ. I want to find you strong. And that's how Paul leaves off the epistle. For us tonight, as the musicians come and we close our service, understand this Christian. Every single one of us here is absolutely beloved of God. He is faithfully committed to bringing us from where we began on the day that we put our faith in him to what we will be on the day when he calls us home and he perfects everything else that's lacking within our lives. He is in the process as we die daily of changing us from what we were and what we are into what we shall be. And he uses every instrument at his disposal to do it. And every ounce of pain and suffering and difficulty and trial that we're going through, whether they be things outward or whether they be things in our relationships or whether they be things mentally, whether they be things in our hearts, whether they be depressions, whatever it is that we're going through, whether it even be temptations that we find ourselves wrestling with on a daily basis. He is the author of those things. And he gives the sustaining grace to carry us through those things so that he can use those things to produce good within our lives. And that is always true for every single one of us. So be encouraged. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the truth of these things. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us faith to believe tonight that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy even to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. And that though, Lord, in this life, we face various tribulations, we stand tonight in faith that you, Lord, are delivering us and sustaining us out of them all. And let your will be done within our lives. So give us faith tonight to embrace whatever it is that we face. And give us strength, Lord, to bear up under it. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the thorns, for the difficulties, for the afflictions. And we ask that you would prosper in your purpose in us. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.